welcome to Full Release with Samantha B. Hopefully, you'll experience one by the end of this. We are fast approaching Memorial Day weekend, and for the love of God, please do all you can to not make it a super spreader event. I'm especially talking to you teens who I know are just like super addicted to this podcast. You can get vaccinated now too, so there's really no excuse. In the meantime, thank you for choosing to listen to my dulcet tones this week and every week. I'm going to be sitting down Zooming, really, with a special guest who I admire, genuinely want to spend time with, and who will hopefully leave me in a positive state of mind. I know it's so weird, right? Welcome to Biden's America, I suppose. I'm joined by my producers, Svia Baron Reinstein and Adam Howard. Now, as you know, our guest today, Sherilyn Eiffel, is a prominent, highly respected civil rights attorney. She is tackling huge national issues. But on this podcast, it's a safe space to sweat the small stuff. So if you were able to criminalize one of your biggest pet peeves, and I will not ask this question of Sherilyn Eiffel, but I'm asking you, what would it be? What would it be? I feel like that's easy. Is it? Loud chewers. Loud Uh, chewers. Or don't sit near me. I can't. Really? I cannot handle it. Yeah. I, I guess I hope your husband is not one of those oh people. Oh, my God. Now he's good. Yes. <laughs> That's so interesting. I think I might be that. Oh, you chew with your mouth closed. I do chew with my mouth closed, but my oldest daughter, she's 15 now. She sits at the dinner table with all of us. We usually eat dinner together. And sometimes she just is like puts her hands over her ears and she's like, I can hear all, you're all chewing. <laughs> it's awful. Maybe she just has very sensitive ears. Maybe. We don't know what she's talking about. We're yeah. like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> but we don't. We're like, we are. We're so quiet. And she's like, it's ringing in my head. <laughs> it's just like, anyway. All right. Well, she'll be my co-sponsor. <laughs> she might bill. be. Adam, what would you choose? Well, this is a very friend of mine for me because I went to a movie last night for the first time in like a year in a theater uh-huh. proper. But okay. uh, people talking in the movie theater is like oh. a huge. I know that like some theaters like Alamo and stuff, they have rules about that. But mm-hmm. I just I get anxious even when it's during the previews because sometimes you're near one of those people where you're like, they're oh, yeah. going to be this cut. Co- the volume of this conversation is already so loud that I'm like, I don't think that they can bring it down in time <laughs> for when the credits start. <laughs> So I start tensing up and it's like, you know, I'll shush, but you, I oh, want yeah. that. I want the letter of the law behind it. <laughs> right. Right. I'll shush. I'm a shusher. I'll shush. I do it really nicely though, but I will shush. Like, like a quick. Sh- I have a vivid memory of seeing a movie in theaters when I was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 and someone's phone rang in the middle oh, of yeah. it and they turned it off. And someone yelled, if that rings again, it'll be the last time it rings. Whoa. Oh, my God. <laughs> the movie. Like, the movie was Good Night and Good Luck. <laughs> wow. I kind of know how this ends. It was very, it was very serious. <laughs> I want to know what happened to this Edward R. Murrow. Yeah. That person was in a mood. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know what I would choose? I would criminalize. I, I think it's probably already a, no, maybe it's not, spitting on the street. Oh, my God. That's a good Outdoor one. Outdoor spitting. What are you doing? It's weird. With your saliva. I felt that a lot this past year. Like, why are you doing that right now? Why are you doing that? Why do you ever do that? Keep your spit to yourself, but especially now. Here's what I do. And I have saliva in my mouth. It goes down my throat. Yeah. (laughs) I just go like, nope, swallow. Like it's in your mouth. What's in your spit? (laughs) That you have to put it all over the world. For our non-New York listener, that (laughs) is like an epidemic uh, in this city, I feel like people just and they'll look right at you. 
Like there's not Expand. even a little bit of hesitation. <laughs> it's no, like, like out the car window. Yeah. Why? I saw that yesterday. I don't understand it. I'm like the human body. There's like a, a biological purpose for pretty much there's everything. There's a place that goes. <laughs> there's a place that it goes. It fits right into a thing. It's like part of the whole process. <laughs> if it tastes bad to you, you should stop doing the thing that makes your spit <laughs> taste so bad. And why do you have so much of it? Yeah, I know you don't have more than I do. <laughs> Because I have it too. We all do it. Right. But I'm not just like waving it, like just like horking it all over. I've never, I think it's the <laughs> grossest. People do it a lot in Canada too. Oh, really? In Toronto, people just like, and if you're sick and you're doing like, what in the world? It's just a yucky. Yeah. It's disgusting. Post COVID, we should definitely have a moratorium. <laughs> on we should have always had a moratorium, sure. but especially now. Right. Don't, don't put your boogers on things and don't <laughs> spit. Oh, God. Anyway, up next, Sherilyn Eiffel, <laughs> the most respected woman <laughs> in civil rights. Like, I'm so sorry. I cannot leave it on that spit note. Spit boogers. Spit Sherilyn boogers. Eiffel. No, I will not do that. I, am, I have to tell you, I'm so excited to speak with her. I am just a huge can you say that you're a huge fan? But I am. Yeah, we've wanted her on this show for a long yeah, time. Yeah, a really, really long time. <laughs> okay, so we're going to take a quick break, but we have Sharon Eiffel coming up. <gasps> Joining me today is Sherilyn Eiffel. Sherilyn is the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, the nation's premier civil rights law organization fighting for racial justice and equality. Very important, very impressive stuff for this show, which is the premier podcast hosted by me. Right now, there's a lot keeping Sherilyn busy from voter suppression efforts to the fight for police reform. So I'm so really deeply grateful that she's carved some time out of her very busy schedule to school us on a few things. Welcome to the show, Sherilyn Eiffel. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm hanging in there. I sh that's good news. That is very, very good. I have to thank you for saying yes to this podcast. I'm so extremely excited to speak with you. So I'm just really appreciative oh, that you're here. I'm a huge fan. Oh. I'm a huge fan. I love your show. I love your particular sense of humor. I love your fed upness. And, um, <laughs> well, thank <laughs> channeling, you. Channeling women like me everywhere. So I really just, um, I'm thrilled to, to have the conversation with you. Well, this is the Mutual Admiration Society then. Good for us. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, if it's okay with you, I'm going to just, I'm just going to dive right in. Let's. Okay. Because this episode comes out, it is the one year anniversary of George Floyd's death. So let's mm -hmm. get right into it. How will you mark this day? I have lots of questions about this topic of conversation. Well, by the time we get to uh, May 25th, mm -hmm. we will know better whether Congress is prepared to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, mm -hmm. which is the piece of legislation that was hammered out in the weeks following um, the release of the video of George Floyd's torture and murder. Mm -hmm. And um, and that will tell us a lot about where we are, you know, and who we are. Mm -hmm. You know, many of us have been working very hard on that issue. But, you know, this whole question of policing and racism, you know, goes so deep into American history and into American society. It is not capable of being eradicated in a year mm -hmm. or, you know, five years. 
for 10 years. Most of us who have been working on this issue have been working on it uh, for decades. And most Black people, this has been an issue in our lives for as long as we can remember. For me, my first encounter with this issue was, was when I was 10. Wow. Without divulging my age, mm-hmm. I can say that, you know, that's many decades ago. Right. So um, this is a part of America. This is not some aberrant set of circumstances that runs contrary to this country. This has been a part of this country for a very long time. And, you know, we're working on multiple fronts to fight it. So we're about to find out who we are. Who do you think we are? (laughs) I'm scared to ask. Well, you know, it's, 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 I actually think that's the question we should be asking ourselves every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear people all the time say, this is not America. And I think, what? Yes, it is. Right. (laughs) You know, it's pretty clear. Um, It absolutely is. I've managed to have a very um, robust career as a civil rights lawyer for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because this is who we are, because, you know, these are the the problems that face this country. Mm -hmm. And I said last year that one of the things that's so unsettled me, to be honest. And I've seen, you know, a lot of videos Mm -hmm. of police violence. The reason the George Floyd video so unsettled me was the same reason I think many other people were unsettled. It was having this officer, you know, look at us in that way while he was killing this black man, surrounded by witnesses, you know, cameras rolling. Mm -hmm. He's looking right into the camera. His hands are in his pockets. And I have said that um, I take that gaze as a challenge. He is looking at us that way because he doesn't believe that anything will happen to him. In the trial, when they played the video again, you know, I think what was so important, and and this is where you get your hope from, listening to the crowd, listening to the people, listening to the people who wouldn't leave the courage of Darnella Frazier, the 17-year-old taking that video. You know, the man saying, you're a bum, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, just to to, to Officer Chavin, the, the, the challenge from people who were trying to save his life. Right. That's that's the part of America we we want to encourage and support. All of those people who were willing to stand there for the life of one man. How much of a watershed was the Derek Chauvin verdict? And are you concerned that he will uh, continue to be the exception that proves the rule? Yeah, I think if he had, I don't want to downplay the conviction because mm-hmm. had he not been convicted, oh yeah. So um, I didn't have a plan. And um, but we should remember that this is someone who was convicted with a nine minute video with, you know, 30 witnesses around who saw the event with Mm -hmm. officers willing to testify against him, the police chief willing to testify against him. That doesn't happen. Right. So this was the unicorn. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I remind people always that. Walter Scott, you know, the 53-year-old Black man who was running in that park in North Charleston, you may remember, in 2015 and was shot several times in the back, was shot five times Mm -hmm. by uh, Officer Michael Slager. And then we saw Michael Slager drop, you know, the taser near him. And we watched that whole video and he went to trial too. He was vigorously prosecuted and the jury was hung. Right, right. Uh, He's in prison. He's in prison because of the federal civil rights prosecution against him. Mm -hmm. But, the, you know, the video is not a guarantee. We, we all saw the video of, you know, Eric Garner being choked to death on a street in New York yeah. in 2014. And that officer, you know, stayed on the force until last summer. Right. So, you know, we you never know. And so is it a watershed? Um, had it gone the other way, it would have been a watershed for sure. Mm-hmm. 
having been convicted, it was important. Right. But it doesn't tell us that things have fundamentally changed. Well, I know that this single question could take the entire interview, <laughs> but can the police can the police be reformed? I honestly believe that, um, and and I say this as someone who, you know, worked for many years to try to make those reforms happen. Mm -hmm. The organization I lead, you know, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Mm -hmm. we're part of the legal team that sued, you know, the NYPD around stop and frisk. And so we've been involved in a lot of this stuff for a long time. Mm -hmm. I think what was a watershed was last summer, the protests and being witnessing the police response to protests around the country. We had protests in 50 states. Mm-hmm. This is the largest protest. It's bigger than the civil rights movement. Right. The civil rights movement never had protests in all 50 states. Right, right, right. Sustained. Right. And I think we all saw how law enforcement responded around the country. We saw the violence. We saw the attacks. We saw the, you know, the elderly man pushed to the ground in Buffalo. And then the other officers say, no, you can't go to aid him. I mean, we all saw that. That's the watershed. Mm-hmm. And that watershed for me means that we are now firmly in the space in which we must decide that we are going to imagine an entirely different way of thinking about public safety. It can't be this. There will be, there will, I'm sure, be some, of course, law enforcement officers for serious violent crime. There should be. But this way of policing that America has adopted, mm-hmm. where we release onto the streets hundreds of armed constabulary to resolve disputes from somebody walking in the middle of the street to driving on a suspended license mm-hmm. to passing a $20 check, you know, to, uh, to, to murder <laughs> and all those things, you know, get an armed officer in response. Right. That is not sustainable. Right. And so it's time for us to rethink what really makes us feel safe. What really makes us safe? When do we need different kinds of interventions mm-hmm. and we should be reserving armed officers for the most egregious, violent and dangerous circumstances. George Floyd uh, being believed to have passed a bad $20 check did not require four armed officers. Just the other day, just about a week or so ago, I had the opportunity to go into bed and talk to the folks at SOS bed and uh, to hear about violence interruption and meet violence interrupters. And it was really, I think, revelatory, even for my audience. It's a very progressive audience. And I don't think that people necessarily understand what that is, Mm -hmm. just disrupting violence at the community level with community engagement. And I was just so fascinated to talk about it in really real terms with the people who are there doing that work. And it's really working. It really works. I'm so glad you did that. I, 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 when, when you start talking with people about it, they kind of get it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think people get alarmed about different ways of talking about it, but, but they get it. If you, if you've ever, you know, so I lived in Brooklyn for years and some nights it would be super late. I was a civil rights lawyer. Then I would get in really, really late. I had to get up really, really early. And some nights there would be younger people outside mm-hmm playing music and hanging out and it's summertime and, and, and when it gets to, you know, like one o'clock, two o'clock and you're trying to sleep, you're pissed. Right. Sure. So let's say you yell out the window, not saying I did, but just, let's say you did. Right. Um, you <laughs> yell out the window and say, Hey, you know, kids, I'm trying to get sleep, you know, and let's say the kids, you know, they unleash the F bomb, right. They're, you know, what's your response to that? Right. Should that be a circumstance in which you call nine one one, or should there be some other 
community-based mm-hmm. force right. that can intervene in that situation, right. who knows how to talk to young people because they've been trained that way, mm-hmm. right? And who can come out and actually resolve what is a dispute. Mm-hmm. There, there are, there's a whole range, there's a continuum of disputes in the community, right? right? So that's one, I just described one. Do we really think that what we want are two squad cars to pull up and eight officers jump out who are all armed to address 16-year-old kids who are out having a good time inappropriately too late (laughs) playing loud music, likely violating, you know, whatever is the noise ordinance or what you could get super legalistic about it, Mm -hmm. but basically they're being kids. Right. Yeah. It's nice to imagine that there can be a middle, you know, something in between doing nothing and yeah. and calling 911 calling 911 and and what you hear like from parents who have children who suffer from you know chronic mental illness mm-hmm. and issues they don't want to call 911 but but if their child is frightening them if they think they might harm themselves mm-hmm. or if they're behaving erratically or if they're running out of the house and you want to stop them you know you don't know what to do and if if you live in a jurisdiction where that's the only number you can call then that's what people do. And the cases that, you know, that we've been involved in that involve those kinds of circumstances, Mm -hmm. you know, people being killed by the police because it was a mental health crisis, Mm -hmm. you know, someone running naked in the streets or obviously unarmed, Mm -hmm. but, but police officers respond. And within minutes, that person has been tased to death or shot or suffocated. And the parents imagine the pain and the grief you wanted to help your child. And instead you called a force that ended up killing your child. Right. Th- th- we have to rethink this. Right. So, I mean, I'm in New York City where the, I mean, the police union here is a really big deal, like a really big deal. Can you speak a little bit more about the specific power of police unions, both in cities and in politics? Because this is meaningful. Yeah, they're not like any other union. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they mm-hmm. are... Um, they are incredibly powerful. Mm. They're incredibly, uh, they tend to be led by people who are super bellicose. Right. You know, if you've ever read the tweets of the oh. head of the sergeant's union in New York uh, City in the in NYPD, you know, you would not think this would be someone who could hold any position Shocking. of public trust, let alone Shocking. public safety. Mm-hmm. So they operate as a force unto themselves. Right. And their contracts are largely contract designed to protect them. And one of the reasons we, we did a police union contract project, and if you go on our website, you can find it, okay. where we actually try to give a to- provide a toolkit to community groups to help them be equipped to engage in the process when police union contracts are being negotiated in their cities. Oh. Because what happens is the political leadership, the mayor or the city council or whoever's in, in charge politically, they're negotiating for money, right? Right. They, they don't, they want to pay the least amount they have to pay. The police union is negotiating for power and impunity. Right. So they're negotiating for all kinds of provisions that protect police officers. And what you find is that cities often give in to them in exchange for, you know, the contract's going to be somehow less expensive. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we created a toolkit that you can find on our website and it identifies the provisions in police union contracts that are most problematic in terms of officer accountability. That when you see that language, oh. you want to be concerned because that's the language that protects officers from being questioned, you know, for 48 hours after an incident or okay. that, um, you know, uh, 
undermines officer discipline. And then we have the jurisdictions where the contracts are coming up for renegotiation. Right. So you can go on there and you can learn, you know, is my is my city getting ready to renegotiate the contract or in the middle of contract negotiations? Because we really need a community voice right. in this. We need the community to be able to say, this is what we want. Mm-hmm. But right now, police unions have incredible, incredible power in a way that, frankly, is alarming. They are intimidating. They are- and I'm a, and I'm a pro-union person. Right, you know, yes. So we believe in it. But this is not like any other union. Right. And um, it needs to be examined. The Justice Department seems to be taking its job seriously by investigating uh, some police departments over allegations of bias policing. But what what reforms could they impose that can't just like be rolled back in the future when we get Trump 2.6? Yeah. You know, which I mean, I feel like we're cruising toward and we can talk about that as well. But yeah, that's another conversation. So, yeah. well, I mean, you ask absolutely the right question, Samantha, which is like, what are the things that can't be reversed? Right. And the only way we get there is by legislation, mm-hmm. which is why we need the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Okay which would do a couple of things. It would, first of all, end qualified immunity for police officers. Qualified immunity is a defense Mm -hmm. that the Supreme Court has suggested that public officials are entitled to when they are sued civilly for constitutional violations. And basically, although it it shouldn't function as absolute impunity from suit, it does, is that basically the way the doctrine has been, and I won't get into the weeds, but the way it's been interpreted by courts it basically has functioned as a shield against being able to uh, sue officers for constitutional violations. Mm -hmm. Um, So first is getting rid of qualified immunity. Officers need to feel that they are going to be accountable, that they are going to in some way be accountable, like you or I are accountable. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we, if we, if we violate the law in our job, um, if you violate the Constitution, you, you, you know, you're a police officer for sure, but you are still bound by the Constitution. And the Constitution includes our First Amendment rights, our Fourth Amendment rights to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, you know, all of the rights, our, our, our equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment, all of those, everybody's bound by them, including police officers. Right. But this doctrine essentially says if the police, you know, believed they were reasonably believed they were doing their job then, you know, you kind of can't get at them for those violations. So we need to we need to get rid of qualified immunity so that you can bring those lawsuits. Doesn't guarantee that the police are going to lose those lawsuits. Actually, Mm -hmm. police do quite well in court for the most part, but at least removes that layer of absolute protection. The second piece of it is that it would give the Department of Justice a tool to do prosecutions by changing the standard in the federal civil rights statute that would allow the Department of Justice to sue more readily And then thirdly, it would create a national registry of police misconduct so that we could stop bad officers from going from department to department, like the officer who killed Tamir Rice Mm -hmm. in in Ohio, who, you know, his prior job thought he was the worst, you know, and thought and and thought he should never be hired as a public safety officer. And Mm -hmm. yet he was same with one of the officers involved in the killing of Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. Also in, in Louisville, he left a department in Lexington which you know said we would never hire him again, right? So we need to we need to have a registry so that we we don't have kind of the flying Dutchman of bad officers who are able to engage in mis- serious misconduct 
and then move to other departments. So we need that piece of legislation, but the Department of Justice has tools on its own and one you identified, which is being able to sue departments, bring pattern and practice investigations as they did in Baltimore and as they are now doing in Minneapolis and in Louisville, which is exciting. So they're investigating both of those departments. We've asked for something else because the other power that the Department of Justice has is Mm -hmm. the power of the purse. They give out a lot of money to police departments every year. Right. So there are like 18,000 police departments. They give out grants to about 16,000 of them. Okay. Okay. Which is, you know, that's substantial. Substantial. And we, um, we filed a letter with the Department of Justice just a week ago asking them, requiring that they suspend all of their grant programs to law enforcement agencies until they can examine their own protocols to ensure that they are complying with the requirements of the Civil Rights Act. Okay. And Title VI of the Civil Rights Act is the provision that says that the federal government cannot give funds to any state or local program that engages in discrimination. It was enacted in 64 to actually get at schools that wouldn't comply with Brown versus Board of Education with right. desegregation. But it applies to every to every federal dollar that that they're, it's not supposed to go to programs that discriminate. And we believe that the Department of Justice has to reexamine whatever protocol it is currently using to ensure that it is not supporting police departments that are engaged in discrimination. And so we're waiting to hear from them on that. Things feel different now. What do you think you'll hear back? It does feel different. Okay. I mean, listen, Bill Barr, I, I, we don't have that kind of time to talk about we- that disaster. <laughs> Sessions also disaster. Sure. Um, and then in between there was that guy Matt Whitaker for like six months the hot tub oh, sales. Remember? Yeah, right. mm-hmm, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Oh god. Well, okay. Here's a question. How do we fight? You know, how do we fight structural, institutionalized racism when you know a not insignificant portion of society doesn't even acknowledge that it exists at all? Ron DeSantis. But like, if people don't even acknowledge that that is a real thing, how do you how do you fight that fight? Well, we, you know, I will tell you, I am um, solidly uninterested in whether the, the the people who are perpetrating systemic racism believe that it exists. OK, you know? so, <laughs> okay. So, because it's not really important. If I'm just saying, I mean, I, you know, I'm suing Ron DeSantis right now twice, you know, one Great. one around the anti-protester law, one around the vote expression law. It, it doesn't matter to me what whether he thinks it's real. Mm-hmm. The truth is that um, I don't. You, you kind of hit the nail on the head because the reason people don't know it or believe it is because it is systemic. Right. If it's all around you, if you're in the matrix, you don't know you're in the matrix. Oh boy. I'm sorry. I went there, but you know, (laughs) but that's, but that is what, but that is what systemic racial discrimination is like. You live in an ecosystem in which everything around you seems inevitable. Like it's no, I, I talk about it this way, Samantha, pick any city, you know, you're in New York. I'm talking to you right now from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. The 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 physical layout of the city feels inevitable, right? You know, Harlem is uptown, and then there's a village, and you know, the east side—that's where the you know the Upper East Side is where the wealthy people live. Right? We have these sure. ideas about neighborhoods, and we just kind of think that that's how it all happened. But right. if you do the work that I do, you understand that all of that was constructed, and that all of that is deeply embedded with systemic racism that was perpetuated by the federal government. That actually had rules about where black people could live and white people could live. Even if you wanted to get, you know, a home loan, 
that you had to be allocated to a certain neighborhood that wasn't integrated. You'll know something about the history of racial violence and pogroms where Black people were run out of neighborhoods. You'll know something about gentrification. If you, if you have the eye I have, then when you look out at a city and you understand why where some people live and where other people don't live, right? right? Black people live on the South side, white people live on the North side. You'll understand that all of that geography is a result of decision-making and policies and investments that were deeply influenced by racism. That's what systemic racism is. But it's not like you wake up every morning and you open up the door and you go outside and you say, wow, look at the systemic racism. Because right. the world you live in, it's just, I don't do, I don't do it either. But if you asked me about a particular neighborhood, I could probably tell you something about how federal government policies and local policies and sometimes you know, individuals and, and, and groups engaged in violence shaped and created the physical landscape that you now live in and that you think right. is just the way it is. Right. That you may be very much the beneficiary of. That's right. That's right. <laughs> As you were saying about a federal registry, I'm such a fan of federal registries. <laughs> I don't think we have enough. I don't think we have enough of them. No. I do recall years ago doing a piece at the Daily Show, even like so long ago, about how there was no like federal database of police shootings. That's right. We called together information from like the Washington Post, mm-hmm. <laughs> from, yeah. from, you know, terrific civic groups from Campaign Zero. And uh, this is what we ha- we are we are compelled to do. Now, you can get information. The FBI does keep data mm-hmm. on police officers who are killed or injured. Um, and, and that's appropriate. But we don't keep the same data on who police officers kill. And we should be keeping that information and it, we should know it by race. And we should know it by the instrumentality so that we understand that when we talk about officer shootings, that that's just one category that people, you know, we have had a client who was tased to death 19 times, you know, tasing is supposed to be the, the non-lethal form of engagement. So, sure. so we need, we should be keeping that data so that we have the empirical information that can drive policy solutions. Right. But I think people just don't want to keep that data because it's not going to tell a pretty story. Right. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pivot a little bit and talk about another something that's really fun. Voter suppression. Mm. <laughs> we are just, we're going to hit it all. The highlights. We're going to do again, the big ones. <laughs> all right. Well, let's start here. How frightened do we need to be for one thing of ongoing efforts in swing states to erroneously recount and negate the results of the election. So let's start there. And then we'll talk about that super sexy census and gerrymandering. How worried should we be? <laughs> and I think I know the answer. You do. But you know what? It's really important and um, encouraging that you asked the question that way. Okay. Because I think that the hardwiring, when we see something super anti-democratic, and mm-hmm. racist and outrageous happening is that people think it's so outrageous that you just ignore it. There they go again. Gosh, right. they're so crazy, you know, and we don't understand the danger. Right. And I think that what's happening in Arizona is actually very dangerous, not because, you know, the, the audit is ob- obviously illegitimate, mm-hmm. not because they're going to find the votes and overturn the election. That's not that's not the reason. The reason it's so dangerous is because it is happening. And as it happens and unfolds and it's not stopped, 
it, uh, it convinces a whole swath of people that the process of doing this is legitimate. That even being willing to do this, I mean, I've, I've been looking at the headlines about Arizona in the finest of newspapers, you know, uh, audit continues as questions loom. Really? What questions? questions. What do you mean questions? questions loom? Yeah. So there's a way in which just allowing it to go forward mm-hmm. convinces people that there must be something there. It's almost like Trump being president, you know, people just kept thinking that, you know what, if he's really terrible and crazy and 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 evil and 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 inappropriate and unfit someone would stop him right right that so we're kind of hardwired that way mm-hmm. and so what i see happening in arizona is a dry run okay this is going to happen in 2022 right we should be worried about whether in in states frankly where republicans are in control there will be these efforts to redo elections to not sit you know new house members to not sit new senators we should remember Raphael Warnock is running again, right. right? In 2022, he had the short seat in the Senate in Georgia. So we should we should be worried about people thinking that this is the way you can appropriately behave in a democracy. It is very difficult to get people to talk about these kinds of, and this is like this is like the real meat and potatoes of the whole issue is staying very engaged with it in times of relative calm. Like I definitely yeah. always worry about stories like this happening in the summertime when people are like, just let me, I just want to go get an ice cream. Yeah. yeah. I just want to be light. I don't want to talk about the midterms. I don't want to talk about gerrymandering. I don't want to talk about 2022. That's like a few years away, but actually there's so much happening right now. It's right now. It's right now. And, you know, I, I understand, um, uh, you know, people who don't do this work 24 seven, right. You know, you need, you, you all are living your lives and you're doing your jobs and I get it. And so that's okay. But I do want people to understand that at least in my view, what is happening at this moment is as dangerous as January 6th. Okay. This is a slow motion version of what was happening on January 6th, the devolution of all of these voter suppression bills to Southern states where, where states like Georgia, you know, are essentially saying, you know, we're going to take the power away from local election officials. Local election officials stood up to Trump, you know, last year. The Secretary of State Raffensperger stood up to Trump and wouldn't give in to Trump's efforts to find votes, mm-hmm. <laughs> but just find the 11,000 votes in Georgia. You know what we're going to do? We're not going to let those those people have the power anymore. We're going to now turn the power over to the legislature to be able to decide which votes to disqualify and which votes not to disqualify. That's part of this Georgia election bill. Wow. We have to understand that that's what's happening. And so the effort basically is to create the apparatus at the state level that will allow for exactly what Trump wanted desperately in that period after election day until January 6th. And January 6th was the violent, you know, ugly manifestation of that effort. Mm-hmm. But what is happening now is the slow motion legislative version of that. I'm going to remember that framing for myself. We're doing a big piece on the show in June, early June, about all of these voter suppression laws that are coming forward. And I'm going to remember that you said that. And I'm going to keep that really lodged in my brain. It'll help mm-hmm communicate to people, I think, why we're talking about this now. <laughs> I mean, because there's a, you know, there's 
Oh boy, it's really scary. Okay, well, let me ask you this question. Do you, how do these like super draconian voter suppression laws, like how do lawmakers rationalize criminalizing giving people water when they stand in line to vote? Is HR1 our only hope of of stopping those? Like how do we how do you how do you do that? That those mental gymnastics to go like, no, this is correct. We should not be hydrating people. I don't understand. <laughs> like, I can't think that way. Yes, the anti-hydration yeah. provision. You know, you know what's what's even scarier? I, brace yourself. I'm going to scare oh, no. you. Okay, more. I'm ready. Yeah. No, really. Don't know. Don't know. Okay. So, so let's take Georgia, where there is a provision in the Georgia bill that passed. And by the way, we've also sued Georgia, challenging their voter suppression mm-hmm. law. And among the many provisions, and there's, you know, provisions on absentee voting that now requires photo ID for absentee voting that never mm-hmm. did before. There's a crunching of the early voting period. There's the new provision that allows anyone to make unlimited challenges to the legitimacy of a voter. Fun times, right? So that's just a giant voter intimidation provision that was written into that law. And then this provision that makes it a misdemeanor to offer or provide food or drink to anyone standing in line to vote. Now, when it was first being proposed, what they kept saying was, this is just like electioneering, right? You know how you can't like wear a MAGA hat um, within a hundred feet of the polling sure. place. Every, every jurisdiction has their own rules. Usually it's a hundred feet or 200 feet. You can't, you know, you can't wear your Biden yeah. Harris, you know, shirt or whatever. Okay. So no electioneering near the polling place. So at first what they said was, this is just like that because, you know, you, you could be the person who's, you know, I'm, I'm giving you water or maybe I'm giving you something that you really, I'm, you know, I'm providing martinis and that sure. makes me want to vote for your candidate, you know, something like that. Okay. So that was what they first said, but it's not that. The law actually is to anyone within 25 feet of a voter even standing in line. And as you know, in Georgia, in Fulton County, in the primary election, people stood in line for nine hours, right? Uh, We had in Alabama in the general election last year, we had two elderly women who fainted. One, they called an ambulance for her. She would not get out of the line because that's how much she wanted to vote. So they know what they're doing. But here's the thing. I testified in Congress a few weeks ago before the Senate Judiciary Committee about the Georgia bill and about uh, HR1. And testifying as well was the Speaker Pro Tem Mm -hmm. of the Georgia Senate. And when she was asked whether the bill criminalized the provision of water and food to people standing in line, she emphatically said it did not. Now I'm looking at the language of the bill, it does. It's so indefensible that she couldn't defend it. And so you will routinely hear people say about the Georgia bill, it doesn't do that. You know how Pence does that sometimes when you like Pence used to you would say like, um, uh, you know, President, you know, President Trump was heard on the on the Access Hollywood tape. And he was. No, he right. wasn't. You know, he just does it. It's like, cool. So they would say that they would just say, no, it doesn't. But what's been interesting and the part that's scary is that since that time. Florida has passed a similar right. provision. There was that hearing in the Senate just last week in which Senator Ossoff attempted to ask the Senate if they would support a provision that would protect people providing food and drink to people online and the Senate wouldn't do it. Something three weeks ago that kind of embarrassed them so that they had to deny that it even existed actually doesn't embarrass them anymore. That's how fast it's, it's happening. happening so fast. That's how fast we're, we're spiraling down. 
that something that even they knew was unconscionable, they, they passed it anyway, don't get me wrong, but they couldn't defend it. And so they just pretended it wasn't in the bill is something that now they, they feel quite comfortable <sighs> defending. That, that's how we're spiraling down. And that's what should make right. us. Okay, afraid. well, I am afraid. So I'm even more afraid. As promised. <laughs> can you respond? Can can the LDF, can you can you respond to these things fast enough? They're they are accelerating and spreading as fast as lightning. So litigation is a blunt mm-hmm. instrument. I'm wedded to it in part because it is particularly useful in a world that has become fat-free, because it requires you to actually mm-hmm. have facts and to actually uh, present evidence. And I like that forum. Right. So that's wonderful. It is slow. Right. It is slow. And, um, you know, in the years that we challenged, we challenged Texas's voter ID law, which they enacted in 2014. And, you know, in the years that we were litigating that case, we would win at every turn. You know, we went one in the in the trial court, then they appealed, we won in the court of appeals, and they asked for another rehearing, and then we won. You know, but it, during that period, the ID law continued, and hundreds of offices were elected in Texas, right? In the state assembly, district attorneys, judges, railroad commissioner, mm-hmm. you know, all these offices, these elections went forward during this period. So that's one of the problems. It's one of the reasons why we need the return to preclearance that would be in the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would require any jurisdiction to have to submit any voting mm-hmm. change to a federal authority to get permission to determine whether or not it negatively affects racial minorities and their voting strength. That's what we used to have until the Supreme Court's decision in the Shelby County versus Holder case in 2013. And that's what we need because that allowed us to get out ahead of the discrimination before it happened. You couldn't enact the provision until you got permission from the federal authority. And now we're playing whack-a-mole, litigation whack-a-mole. Right. I do sometimes wake up and go, gee, I wish I wish that a day had 42 hours in it, and I wish that a week had <laughs> 17 days in it. I have been lobbying for the 25-hour day. I feel like one more hour <laughs> That would be day. so helpful. I feel like it's doable, you know, <laughs> and it's necessary. <laughs> okay, I get to pivot again a little bit here. Can I ask, why are Democratic politicians clinging to the filibuster even after former President Obama described it as, you know, a relic, a relic of Jim Crow. I'm going to have a really short answer mm-hmm. on this one. I don't know. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I honestly don't. The fiction that the filibuster somehow is producing some bipartisan mm-hmm. conversation isn't itself a fiction. Wildly off topic, but kind of not off topic is that, you know, I've done a lot of research and written quite a bit about the history of lynching in this mm-hmm. country and the efforts to pass anti-lynching bills in the 20s and 30s, this kind of standoff, you know, in Congress is actually not particularly helpful, certainly not helpful to progressive legislation. It certainly wasn't helpful during the civil rights movement. And I think, you know, in most people's mind, if, you know, when people say, well, we need the speaking filibuster, we just need people to make people stand and speak for hours. And I think, well, okay, if the first thing I think of when I think of the speaking filibuster is Strom Thurmond, Mm -hmm. you know, who took steam baths to like make sure that he was prepared before his filibuster of the Civil Rights Act of 1957 right. for 24 hours. That's who's using it, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, no, I don't get it. 
And look, it doesn't really, the history here is not particularly relevant because we are in a moment that is sui generis. We are in a moment that we really haven't seen, certainly in our lifetimes. We are in a moment of being politically stuck. We are also in a moment of tremendous democratic threat. And it is incumbent upon the representatives in Congress to use all the tools available to them to avert that threat. We didn't go over the cliff on January 6th, but we're still very close to the cliff's edge. edge. And any senator who pretends not to see that is, in my view, um, not engaging responsibly in their obligations. Their response is, no, I'm not. That's just (laughs) not true. What? What are you even talking about? (laughs) um, Okay, Joe Biden has promised, if given the opportunity to nominate the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court, what? would that mean just symbolically, substantively? And follow-up question, are your ears burning? <laughs> just giving well, you the eyes well, that no one can see because it's a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I've written extensively about the importance of having diversity on the bench, on the federal mm-hmm. bench, and I, and I and that includes the United States Supreme Court. You know, when when Thurgood Marshall, who founded the organization I lead and was, you know, the most amazing, created the really the, the field of civil rights law and, you know, had a had an experience and a background that was extraordinary. When he went to the Supreme Court after serving first on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and as solicitor general, you know, one of the things he 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 used to do is is to tell a lot of stories about his experiences as a civil rights lawyer because he spent so much time in the South And, you know, they sounded like stories, but they were telling a real truth, right? This is what it means when the sheriff says, you know, we questioned him all Mm -hmm. night, you know, and he confessed, right? Like, I mean, Marshall had a very particular perspective and his colleagues understood that he had a perspective that came out of experience that they didn't have. And I think it was Justice White who said he told us things, he told us about truths that we didn't know and maybe that we didn't want to know. But Marshall himself said, (laughs) To one point when he was interviewed, none of them knew anything about black people before I got there. Not one of them. You know, that's the truth. And so I think that having that diversity and bringing those different people with different backgrounds and perspectives to the Supreme Court is really important. And then are my ears burning? Well, just a thought, just putting it out there. You've you've listened to me. Anyone having this level of conversation is not likely to... (laughs) Being nominated or confirmed. <laughs> uh, let's talk about. I just have a question about the Federalist Society, which I mean, they've just done so much damage to the courts and really just like escalated hyper partisan nominees that Republicans have put forward. Do you think there will be or should be kind of a liberal counterpart? Well, look, I. Um spend a lot of time thinking about judicial mm-hmm. nominees. I have no objection to groups identifying who they would like to be on right. the bench. I mean, I, I really don't. The question is, what do the political leaders who hold that responsibility do? So on one hand, we can talk about the federal society, but actually it's really about whoever is the president and whoever leads the Senate for, you know, for that political party. Because The power to appoint people to the federal bench is the president's power, and then it is the Senate's power to offer advice and consent in accordance with Article 3 of the Constitution. They don't have to do what any group says. There's a whole lot of people I'd love Mm -hmm. to see on the bench. They're not doing what I say. (laughs) Well, they should be. 
So, you know, well, you know, I think I think there have been some wonderful. I will give this to the Biden team. They have had some wonderful picks for the federal courts. Some of them are attorneys whose background I know, and it's really, really exciting. And I think there will be many more, and that's wonderful. And I think they should be hearing from and influenced by a broad range of groups. That's that's really what I think. But when you have something like the Federalist Society being the sole voice and having the one list mm. and having the president basically pick from that list and that list alone, then you have a problem to me that is really about how the leaders are responding rather than about the organizations. Every organization is going to clamor to have what they want to have happen. And that's their right. But it's up to the sober judgment of those in the White House and of the Senate to probe that and to make their decisions and to hear from multiple sources about who should sit on the federal bench. And I can assure you that the Biden administration is hearing from multiple sources about who should sit on the federal right. bench, not one right. source. They are not taking some organizations, one list and saying, let's get to it's work. Nice to, I love the I love the phrase. I love the term. So sober judgment. It's so nice. We it was so lacking. <laughs> it was so lacking for so long. Yeah, we have to get we, we have to, you know, those those terms are not irrelevant mm. to governance. I mean, the whole I basically we have kind of destroyed the concept right. of what governance even means in exchange for, um, you know, for sound bites and for cruelty and for bragging and for power plays and for, uh, it's just become this kind of feral mm. game of thrones. And politics has that aspect to it, sure. But that's not supposed to be the whole no. thing. The word governance, honestly, unspools my brain. It's just a really relaxing, like if you, if I, that- I could listen to it on a loop at a spa, if someone was massaging my back and I would just completely unwind. <laughs> governance. Good. <laughs> oh, governance. Gosh. We're so desperate. So we? desperate. Please. All right. I'm going to wrap it up. I have one final question for you. Um, let's be honest. You are face to face with the biggest problems that the country faces every single day. How are you not always full of dread? Like what is your, well, you may always be full of dread, but what is your secret to just keeping driving through that? Just like pushing through, pushing into a problem. How do you, how do you do it? You know, it's not always Mm -hmm. easy. Um, I have to say, you know, this has been a really, especially the last five years, it's just been really, really challenging. And you know, there's a part of it that's exciting. If you are a civil rights lawyer, you you are always looking at kind of the worst of this country. and But you're also like totally jazzed by the energy that's involved in trying to get at those problems. I am so inspired by our staff. I, I started my career as a, as a lawyer at the organization that I, that I lead. And um, so I'm just totally like jazzed on our staff because they're so amazing and they're mostly young people. Many of them have young children. They're homeschooling while they're litigating these cases all over the country. Wow. You know, they have a great sense of humor. We have such a good time as a, as a staff. Right. We really enjoy what we do. And you just, I feel forever energized by the energy that they put into it. And these are, you know, young people who have graduated from the best law schools are carrying a ton of debt, and but this is what they decided to do with their lives. And um, you just can't ever get like enough of that. It's, it's extraordinary. And I think what keeps us all buoyed is 
you know, you and I having this conversation, Samantha, is only possible because of the kind of impossible barriers that people before us overcame. Right. I'm always aware of that. I'm always sitting in some Zoom box talking to somebody that, you know, 50 years ago, there would be no hope I would be in the Zoom box talking to, right? So right. you're asking if my ears are burning about being on the Supreme Court. Like those are all things that are relatively new in your and my, well, maybe I'm a bit older, but in my lifetime. <laughs> so, right. And so I'm, I'm ever conscious of that struggle, the struggle of the Thurgood Marshalls and the Constance Baker Motleys and the Pauli Murrays and, you know, all the people, as I'm sure you are in your field, who, you know, did that work of knocking down those barriers. And they had actually no reason to believe that things would change. Right. Like what, what, what would make you think, you know, Marshall and the early LDF crew, you know, we're going to break the back of Jim Crow. Really? Like, like right. why, how could, why in 1940 did that seem like a thing that would happen? You know, but they right. did. They did, you know, in, in 14 years, they got to Brown versus Board of Education and ended, you know, legal apartheid in this country. So right. that's the, you know, even when it's really, really hard and sometimes it is hard and you wake up and you're like, I'm suing the United States Postal Service. Jesus, it's nothing, you know, like, but but these folks were so brilliant and so creative and so relentless that I just try to be like them. Oh, this was great. <laughs> I have a thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. And thank you so much again for saying yes. I just, this was terrific. I mean, for me, it was great. Oh, great. I'm so glad. Thank you for having me. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you so much. Okay. I need to squeeze in another quick break here. Oh my God. She's incredible. (laughs) She's incredible. That was fascinating. She's very cool. But the scary thing about talking to people who are so smart Mm -hmm. is then you realize like how scared you actually have to be. Yes. Yeah. She was not going to give you (laughs) any. She was just like, "Yep, you should be." Yeah. No, be scared. You're not scared enough. You should be much (laughs) more scared. Here's a list of ten other things to be concerned. Yeah, I know. Oh my gosh, I appreciate it. As I was texting Sophia, she nailed what drives me the most crazy about Mike Pence. Right. Which is that thing he does where he's just like, no, that no, no that's not true. No. 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 And you're just like, no, but, but it, it's true. It's on camera. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wasn't at the Capitol. No. <laughs> oh my God. There. Nope. Incredible. All right. Well she's a real legal expert. Yes. But we thought it'd be fun for you mm-hmm. to also try out some legal expertise all right and on some of the even bigger age-old debates oh, of our bigger time. debates all right this is gonna, gonna be throw a few tough ones at you this is gonna be very significant yeah We're probably gonna solve a lot of issues <laughs> well you get to this is you you get to play judge so basically mm, great you know your your ruling stands on these big questions from now on so okay. for instance um should we recognize daylight savings oh <laughs> Oh. People feel strongly about this one way or they the other. They do. I don't feel strongly about it. Neither do I. <laughs> I feel strongly about a lot of things, not strongly about this. I yeah. would go with the consensus view. I would go with the majority view on this. What of do you this guys podcast? think? Of this podcast. <laughs> I just have Adam always I don't done care. it. So I've, it's like such yeah. a part of And it's like, sometimes it's like, a, it's a nice surprise. Like, oh, I got an hour. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> obviously the other one's not such a nice surprise, but like. 
There are yeah. people who are just like, you're stealing time from me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that I feel that way. Yeah. I feel like a joyful surprise on one side of it. <laughs> right. And I feel bummed out on the other side yeah. of it. <laughs> and it's like also, I mean, especially, I'm sure this is true everywhere, but in New York, it always feels particularly unnerving when it gets dark super early. Yes. I always just feel frightened that like the day is slipping away. <laughs> right. So we should obviously get rid of it. Right. <laughs> I guess. I feel like you guys have not been saying that. <laughs> okay. I think we should definitely stop changing the time. Okay. Get <laughs> twice a year. Rid of it. I don't know. Radical. Else is going to take a firm stand. I am. Actually, if I'm the judge, I like a variety. I like variety in my life. <laughs> I like to mix it up. So I judge that we keep doing it. Oh, Let's the ruling has been made. The, time. the ruling. All right. You bestowed all of that power. Chunk, chunk. It's not a law and order sound yep. effect. Don't, don't make us regret it. <laughs> All right. Should we be allowed to wear white after Labor Day? Oh, I think we already are. I think we I think we're allowed. We've this this is not an we age old debate. We broke that True. we broke that barrier. We broke that. Okay. It depends how you wear the white. Like yeah. I don't think that you probably want to wear like topsiders and white Bermuda shorts to work. <laughs> But that's well, just a rule in general. Be seasonally appropriate. Be seasonally appropriate. Can I ask a very stupid question? But why? I'm, I'm yeah. going to. Why is that a rule? Like, why is that a problem for people? White after Labor Day? Yeah, I've never understood what is it. What's wrong with it's it? It's probably racist. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it is. I'm after talking to no, Cheryl but like I mean, it probably is. I mean, most things are. <laughs> yeah. So it's probably some awful yeah. thing that you don't even want to really yeah. know about because it sucks. <laughs> that was just not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I think it's probably... I thought you were going to be like, you know, the fashion no. industry dictates... Yeah, but they're racist no. too, Yeah, so. I don't think yeah. it's... <laughs> it's probably yeah. not... I'm sure it's nothing good. I don't know what it is, and I yeah. don't know if I'm curious enough to find out, but I don't... It's Fair not enough. Good. No, that's yeah, a good default. Good. All right. So we... <laughs> Checks out. All right, next one. This is another one that I find stupid that people mm-hmm. care, but... Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yes, it is. I it agree, is. and I don't know I, why it's controversial. It's not for controversial. People. There's a Christmas tree in it, and that makes it a Christmas movie. <laughs> Every other movie, if it has a Christmas tree in it, is just a Christmas movie. You can only watch it at Christmas, and it's a Christmas party. And it's also not a movie that I like. <laughs> So I took it in a painful direction. (laughs) I didn't see it until maybe two years ago. So Mm. you're not an action movie person. I am completely not a Christmas movie person. It's just an old. It feels everybody's got like big poofy hair in it and like big shoulder pads. (laughs) Bonnie Bedelia, and it's like you can't. I can't take it out of. I can't place it in my imagination now. I watched it too late. It's like if you watch, if you're an adult and you watch West Side Story, you're like, this is awful. But if you watched it when you were (laughs) four or whatever, then it's like, West Side Story, Tony and Amelia. I don't even remember what her name is. Maria. Maria. (laughs) Amelia. (laughs) I love the idea of someone passionately singing that ballad to Amelia. We can't pay for this. (laughs) Don't sing. (laughs) Totally different. Oh man, I just watched that movie the other day. By the way, (laughs) 
And it's it's problematic. I don't know. I mean, it's because they're wearing white. No, no, it's the brown face. But the music (laughs) is great. But it is. (laughs) It is. I mean, when I I mean, I hate to go down this rabbit hole. But when I saw it as a kid, I didn't read like I just it's like, oh, this woman is Puerto Rican, I guess. I didn't. When I got older, I recognized like, oh, Natalie Wood is like just a white lady. (laughs) But I really was like, oh, okay. Like you just buy these things as red. And then years later, you're like, that was a terrible decision. Wait a sec. Why did we we all sign off on this (laughs) for like 40 years? Anyways. Amelia. (laughs) I don't even know how the. I just met a girl named Amelia. Oh my lord! Okay, all right. This is uh, this could get you in okay. some hot water on Twitter. Uh-oh. This oh, is a real geez. Twitter question: Which Chris, Pratt, Evans, Hemsworth, or Pine? <laughs> and do you know who they are? Each one of them now. There's, I know Chris Pratt. Okay, Chris. Evans, well, they're all their first name is all Chris Hemsworth <laughs> and Chris Pine. Why are you saying it like know. that? <laughs> She's giving herself thinking. I'm gonna time. go yeah. with. Oh God, they're all kind of the same, aren't they? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> like for what purpose? Like to hang out with? <laughs> That's to a good question. Sure. <laughs> I don't even. Yeah. Know. I don't understand. Maybe the maybe who who you're the, who you enjoy the most? Like the, you know the, who you think is the most talented or. You're the biggest fan of maybe the talent is a little harsh. Who you, who Where you're is a fan the name of? Chris the uh, best? I don't have a strong opinion on this, but okay, I appreciate that Chris Evans is politically engaged. Yes, so I'm going to choose yeah. Chris Evans. Great answer. He's the premier good, good Chris. Answer. Not to disparage okay. the others. <laughs> no, no. The crispiest, the crispiest Chris. <laughs> the crispiest. Sure. Uh, speaking of crispy, this is the okay. last one. Are tomatoes a fruit or a That's vegetable? So easy. It's they're a vegetable, and I understand the rules of fruits and vegetables, but we regard tomatoes. We use them as vegetables. We don't go. Oh, do would you like some fruit sauce on your spaghetti? More fruit sauce, <laughs> like, and I just. Am so grossed out when there's like a fruit application of tomato. Like, do not, mm. do not make tomato confit or like, don't like boil it down and go, here's some jam. Get <laughs> lost. <laughs> no. I like that you delivered that like you were really a judge, like reading your rules. Absolutely. From the bench. Don't you not. ever. In, in conclusion, life. you get are. Lost. Get out. You are in contempt. I hate this jam. <laughs> this isn't jam. This is tomato sauce <laughs> on my toast. It is not a breakfast food. Guilty of being a vegetable. Guilty. Guilty. <laughs> wow. I stepped into wow. now. Can I be on the Supreme Court now? Like, was that my audition? <laughs> this is good. As far as auditions go for the Supreme Court, that you was audition one of for them. it, right? You audition. Yeah. You're missing one criteria of Biden's. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing. Okay. Well, I liked this podcast. I hope you liked it too. If you did, let us know in the comments. And if you didn't, I mean, that's okay. You can consider hate listening in the future. But honestly, 
please do subscribe to this and rate and review it. Full release, Apple Podcasts, and keep sending your questions to fullrelease at samb.com. They might even be featured in a future episode. And tune in to Full Frontal with Samantha B. It's so much Samantha B. Every Wednesday night at 10.30 p.m. on TBS. And if you need even more, who are you? But that's great. There's always additional full release on Stitcher Premium. And we'll see you next Tuesday for another full release. This podcast is brought to you by Earwolf and TBS. It was produced by Adam Howard and Svia Baron-Reinstein with research provided by Noreen Malik and IT and technical production provided by High Tech. It was edited by Julia Fott and hosted by me, Samantha B. Don't wear royal blue because it attracts the bad kind of mosquitoes <laughs> in the park. I'm like... What? Do we know that? The Crips or the blood mosquitoes? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs>